Okay, um, welcome everybody to the second uh, ISR uh, Information Systems Research Forum event for this term. And uh, my name is Alex Alton, and I just say a couple of words about ISR before I let uh, Peter Erdely to introduce our distinguished speaker, Graham Harmon, today. And what I want to say is that uh, this is actually precisely what we want to do, because uh, Graham's work is relating to what Peter is doing in his PhD thesis, and we have wanted to uh, provide ISRF as a platform to kind of get in touch with uh, senior academics and kind of invite them here to speak to us. So it's not me and Offer who are running the ISRF trying to think about uh, speakers, but kind of to offer this uh, uh, seminar as a platform for people like Peter to kind of, uh, <coughs> kind of tell us who to invite and we just provide the kind of framework for this kind of events. So please, Peter. And Peter will share the uh, session and, and the discussion. Thank you very much, Alexi. Um, as uh, as Alexi, Alexi had just pointed out, the, one of the main objectives of the ISRF is to uh, engage in cross and interdisciplinary debates about uh, the study of information systems and technologies. And so um, it's a great pleasure to welcome today um, the philosopher Graham Harmon, who um, is uh, coming all the way from Cairo uh, via Amsterdam. He's uh, associate uh, professor of philosophy at the American University in Cairo and currently visiting associate professor of metaphysics and the philosophy of science. Uh, at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, Graham is uh, most known for his um, unorthodox reading of uh, Heidegger's tool analysis and uh, the realist philosophy that he has developed um, on, on the basis of his interpretation. Is, uh, some of his books uh, are The Tool Being, Heidegger and the Metaphysics of Objects from 2002, Guerrilla Metaphysics, Phenomenology and the Carpentry of Things, that's from 2005, and this year he uh, has a new book on Heidegger Explains, From Phenomenon to Thing. <laughs> However, his other, uh, perhaps uh, somewhat less widely known uh, passion is uh, for actor network theory as well. Uh, he has just completed a manuscript entitled Prince of Networks, Bruno Latour and Metaphysics. And uh, it's... Um, Many of us here, as you know, in the Information Systems Department have uh, sort of puzzled over uh, the relationship uh, between you know, actor network theory, um, phenomenology, and um, Latour's comments on Heidegger, and, uh, and, and some of the uh, appropriations or, or, or uses of uh, some of the concepts, um, notions from Heidegger's work and phenomenology. Therefore, we are particularly pleased to have Graham here today uh, to uh, illuminate some of uh, these issues and, and mysteries and also tell us uh, about his take on um, object-oriented uh, philosophy and uh, with, with the aim for us to, to also learn about uh, the relevance for this for our social science research and the study of uh, information systems and technology. So please uh, welcome Graham Harmon. Thanks to Peter for inviting me. And the theme of this lecture is the Heidegger-Latour fusion. And I think this might be the only room in the world in which that could plausibly be undertaken right now. Most of the people in the world who believe this is a possible project are sitting here. Uh, and it does not include Bruno Latour himself, who is no fan of Heidegger. I'm slowly pushing him and, and trying to influence him in that direction, but it's, he's resisting every step of the way. 
initially the connection for me was simply that I liked them both. And so I had to puzzle over this a long time, too, until finally the connection became clear. I've been working on Heidegger intensively ever since I was about 19 years old and only became familiar with Latour about 10 years after that. And immediately I, I had the same positive reaction to Latour's work that I had to Heidegger's, even though in tone and to some extent in substance it's completely different. And it was a long road to try to translate them into each other. And I hope that I have managed to do that in my manuscripts which I will be happy to hear Bruno Latour's reaction to in February. He has not seen it yet, so if you want to see it, you can contact me. You can see it before Latour himself does. I wanted to be the last person to see it before we have the, the workshop, uh, so that I've got more people on my side, or 70 or 80 meters behind me, backing me up before he even sees it. Well, it's also no action, no, no, um, no accidents that we would be discussing this, not in a philosophy department, but in some other department, because we have Heidegger, who is... I would say the most recognized 20th century philosopher in many circles now. Some, there might be some dispute about that, but I think you could claim he's the one really universal figure along the traditional analytic continental dividing line. Uh, whereas Bruno Latour is not really taken seriously as a philosopher by many people at all. This summer in Sarkozy in Normandy, we had the week-long colloquium on Latour's thoughts, and I believe every philosopher in the world, every philosopher we know of in the world who takes Latour seriously as a philosopher was present, and there were about six of us. Uh, and so it's, there's a long road ahead there, too, to get people to take Latour seriously as a philosopher. I think linking Heidegger with Latour is the way to do it, since Heidegger is already taken so seriously uh, by so many different camps in philosophy. Now, the usual reading of Heidegger, as I see it, is completely mistaken. He's usually read as a pragmatist. And his tool analysis is taken as a kind of pragmatism, that there's a practical reason before there's a theoretical awareness. I'm going to talk a little today about why I think that's a false reading try to look at what I think is a deeper way to approach, uh, appropriate approach Heidegger and uh, uh, show how that links to Latour, in my view. Okay, so let's take a look at Heidegger. Nice photo that Peter found on the web. Now, I have a strength and two weaknesses here. This is not typically what will be seen as Heidegger's strength, so I'll have to explain this a bit later. The way I see it, what you get in Heidegger with the tool analysis, is that things are not reducible to any of their relations in any sense. It's a kind of return to a strange version of the old-fashioned substance theory, but in a form that can withstand all the postmodern critiques of substance. Weaknesses preserves dominance of human beings over all entities. Uh, no matter how he tries to escape it, Dasein always ends up being at the center of things, right? It's a human Dasein, human existence. And so, uh, in my view, he remains trapped within the Kantian tradition of philosophy, to some extent. Since Kant's critique of pure reason in 1781... Philosophy has only rarely ventured outside this single gap between humans and the world. This is what philosophy has been all about. The paradox of how we jump across and gain knowledge of the world outside of us, or it's an aisle that such a paradox exists, claim that the human and the world are always already bound together, different ways of addressing the same gap. Not much has been said about the relation between two inanimate objects. This is left to the sciences. The sciences deal with this. Philosophy creates a kind of ghetto for itself, where it's dealing only with one kind of relation, human and worlds. The other kinds are left out of philosophy altogether. So that's one weakness that needs to be addressed. And specific entities treated mostly with contempt, well, you may find resources in Heidegger for a philosophy of technology, but you'll have to deal with the fact that the gas chambers in Auschwitz, hydrogen bombs, Adidas shoes, and plastic cups are all essentially the same, he says in this infamous statement. How do you go about addressing specific artifacts in, in the case of Heidegger? You find, obviously, a lot of this in the tour. You find this in people like McLuhan. There are many authors who do a nice job of dealing with specific entities and how they affect our perception of the world. You're not going to find too many resources for that in Heidegger. So that needs to be addressed. Latour. Uh, 
as you'll notice, the strengths and the weaknesses are inverted from Heidegger's. This is the interesting thing about it. Uh, whereas Heidegger privileges human Dasein, Latour, despite some criticisms to the contrary, in spirit at least, allows agency to inanimate actors. Um, there have been some claims that there's always a human observer present on the scene for Latour, and I can see why that's said. I tend to interpret that as being an artifact of his strategy to talk about philosophy of science. Since he's talking about philosophy of science so often, or philosophy of technology, of course there has to be a human there monitoring the interactions between the entities. But in spirit, Heidegger, uh, Latour says, in the reductions, that uh, uh, entities translate each other the, way that, the same way that we translate them, or the same way that we translate or interpret a text. Uh, in principle, two inanimate objects would interpret or translate one another. This has not been said in philosophy very often since Kant's. I think Whitehead is really the tourist great model. Whitehead is the first one to, to simply say, we're going back to before the Kantian period in philosophy, we're going back to the 17th century. Uh, that's the strongest tradition that does that. It tries to leap outside of Kant's Copernican revolution altogether. Specific actors treated on their own terms. Well, let's work and talk about apricots, about... Uh, that's what he lectured on when he came to Cairo, when we invited him. He talked about how is the price of apricots in Paris determined. I don't think my colleagues appreciated that too much. My colleagues being Orthodox, Kantians, Heideggerians, uh, Theridians, I don't think quite saw the point of that, but I, I certainly did. Uh, in Saracy this summer, there was a nice young lady uh, writing her dissertation in Paris who's going to use after networks theory to study volcanoes. I thought this is a wonderful application of Latour's principles. You cannot really do this with Heidegger. A Heideggerian study of volcanoes or of, of apricots is hard to imagine. So just to go back a second to Heidegger, you see strength and the weaknesses are completely inverted here. Heidegger's strength, things not reducible to the relations, becomes, in my opinion, Latour's weakness. I think this is Latour's moment of excess. A thing is defined entirely by its relations. There's nothing in the thing, in the actor, that exceeds any of its current interactions with the environment. And I think this is a philosophical problem. It may not be a methodological problem in the, in the human sciences, but metaphysically it's a problem. Whereas for uh, Heidegger, you have the weaknesses that he preserves the dominance of human being and, and doesn't really have much to say about specific entities. In Latour, quite the opposite. Uh, all actors are on the same footing for Latour, at least initially, and he's able to deal with very specific things in a way that Heidegger is not. So, they need each other's things. Heidegger's question of being, which I do interpret in an unorthodox way that I will try to justify here today, uh, things are always deeper than their presence. Being is about withdrawal. Being, the question of being is not so vague as people think it is in Heidegger. It's quite specific. He means that being is not presence at hand. Being is not something that manifests itself to anything else relationally. It's something deeper than any relation it has to anything else. That's not the standard reading of Heidegger, but I think it can be easily justified. And the great insight of Latour's actor network theory is that this priority of human Dasein vanishes. All the actors, in principle, are on the same footing. And so you can potentially go back to the pre-Kantian sort of metaphysics, uh, while hopefully being able to withstand some of the critiques that Kant made of the pre-Kantian metaphysics. Uh, I think these two strengths complement each other perfectly, and to me, the future of systematic philosophy comes from a Heidegger to a fusion. This is where I think it has to go. Uh, I think that the other great traditions, at least in continental philosophy, that are emerging in systematic philosophy, namely Deleuze and Badiou, do not fully take into account what Heidegger saw. I think this, this is going to cripple them. Okay, so this is what I propose. Philosophy needs to return to metaphysics in the sense of systematic philosophy and, about, and a philosophy about the world itself. And we will do this by way of a Heideggerized actor network theory. We have a network of translations, as in Latour, between cryptic veiled objects, as in Heidegger, in my reading of Heidegger. 
things are hiding, they're withdrawing, they're veiled, uh, but they're doing this by interacting in a network in the truest fashion. So let me just talk a little about Heidegger's tool analysis, a nice hammer. Uh, this is arguably the best-known moment in 20th century philosophy, and certainly one of the most influential. I think it's completely misread as pragmatism. Heidegger's insight about tools, this was largely a critique of his mentor, Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology, who wanted to bracket or withhold, abstain from all questions about the external world, outside of consciousness, and simply describe what appears in consciousness, very minutely. Heidegger's point against this, which started appearing in his works when he was in his late 20s, early 30s for the first time, was that uh, normally our, our manner of dealing with entities is not by looking at them. Normally it comes through using them. So an example would be the floor in this room, which none of you were probably thinking of until I mentioned it. So you were simply standing on it. It was there, because if it weren't there, you'd be hurtling through space, injuring yourself. Uh, the oxygen in the air that you're breathing, your bodily organs... Uh, by far, the vast majority of the entities we are dealing with, we are simply relying on or taking for granted. And so they don't have to be tools in the narrow sense, like hammers and screwdrivers. It can be the English language, which I'm using, and you're all understanding without difficulty, I assume. English grammar is withdrawing the background as you focus on the specific content of what I say, and not struggle with the grammatical structures. Uh, the usual way of reading this is in this pragmatist sense that there's this invisible background of practices that humans are involved in, and only from time to time when, tool, when we think or when tools break do we rise above those practices and engage in theoretical behavior. So it's the old theory-praxis distinction. The problem with this way of reading Heidegger is that practice also does not exhaust the being of the objects quite clearly. I mean, we are using the floor invisibly without thinking of it, but does that really make use of all the aspects of the floor? Obviously not. There are going to be things about the floor that are not relevant to our bodies. There are going to be smells that dogs can pick up from the floor. There are going to be electromagnetic vibrations that certain birds or mosquitoes can perhaps can pick up from the, the floor. There might be other things that no living creature is currently equipped to detect. Uh, new sense organs that will evolve in the future in certain creatures that can pick up certain things about the floor that are not known. So praxis uh, is, distorts the things just as much as theory does. And so we cannot read this as a difference between conscious and unconscious. This is the first thing. This is the way it's usually misread, I think. It has nothing to do with consciousness and unconsciousness. It has to do with our relation to something and the thing in itself. Controversial, but I think inevitable as a reading of Heidegger's tool analysis. And I'll even push it a step further in a few minutes, but that's enough for now. It's, it's not a theory-practice distinction. It's the theory and practice both distort the thing and turn it into a caricature. There's a depth to the thing that no human involvement with the things can possibly detect. Okay, let's work. So I'll, I should say one other thing about Heidegger, because I think this covers everything in Heidegger. Uh, I think the entire philosophy of Heidegger boils down to this. I don't just think this is a reading of the tool analysis. I think this is a reading of his entire philosophy. Because if you look at the question of the meaning of being, which is Heidegger's trademark, this is all it really means. All it really means is that being is, is what always withdraws. Any attempt to, in the history of philosophy to define exactly what being is turns out to be an oversimplification. It turns out to be a form of what he calls presence at hands, forehanded heads. Uh, it's an attempt to define being itself in terms of one particular being. Everything is water, or everything is atoms, or everything is power. Uh, everything is the transcendental conditions of the human subjects. Every philosophy, according to Heidegger, has chosen one specific kind of entity to represent them all. It's kind of the mascot for all of being, which he thinks is impossible. This is ontotheology. It's ontotheology because it's ontology in the form of a theology that picks one specific being as its gods. And in a way, all of Derrida comes out of this, an attempt to show inconsistencies in Heidegger's... Uh, I'm not a great fan of Derrida, but... Uh, in many ways, he's simply trying to push Heidegger's critique of ontotheology 
more consistently and show that it still infects his philosophy even when he thinks it doesn't. Um, so the question of being comes down to this, I think. And I also think there's no real turn in this philosophy. We were discussing this briefly beforehand. There's, a large part of Heidegger's scholarship involves trying to determine what is the exact year when, he's, when he had the famous turn in his thinking. His philosophy flipped around in a new direction. My claim is that there is none. My claim is that this says it all, and you can find new variants of this, ultimately into the strange form of the fourfold that I'll talk about at the end of today's lecture, but it's the same, it's the same Heidegger from 1919 onward, I would say. I'm pretty radical about that, but I think there's no way to avoid that conclusion. Okay, Latour, if you were going to summarize Latour's philosophy, I had this problem a couple years ago, knowing how to start, and so I took the liberty of writing to Latour himself with a few thoughts about what his key philosophical principles are. And his answer surprised me, but it was interesting, and it now makes a lot of sense. And his answer was, you have to look at your deductions. His, one of his lesser-known works, the second half of the pasteurization of France. He called it an orphan book. No one's ever reviewed it. There's not been one review of it. Uh, and so I went back and reread it, and I saw that all of his philosophy really was contained there. And it's one, written in this Wittgensteinian aphoristic style, 1.2.1.4, uh, mixes in autobiography with jokes, uh, what he tells us in that book is that it all began for him in 1972 when he was in Burgundy teaching at a provincial lycée and was driving his van along the road and it suddenly struck him it sounds very Heideggerian that every philosophy in the past has attempted to reduce something to some higher principle whatever it may be and this sounds like Heidegger's critique of mental theology uh, choosing one principle that explains the rest and Latour decided to do the experiment of not reducing anything taking all the actors on their own terms not trying to decide what's real and what's unreal in the world, and simply seeing where that leads him. And eventually, uh, 12 years later, it resulted in the reductions, the book, which perhaps he should have published separately to give it more attention, rather than burying it as an appendix in the Pasteur book. Uh, I claim in my manuscript that there are four basic concepts of Latour's philosophy, which I forgot to put on a slide, I'm afraid, but they are actors, alliances, irreductions, and translation. And I'll just describe each of these briefly. Actors, of course, means anything, anything that acts, anything that has an effect on other things. This could be the tooth fairy just as easily as it could be a rock or a weapon or a, the London Underground, it could be anything. And so in a way, Latour is uh, there attacking the traditional theory that distinguishes between substances and aggregates. Latour does like Leibniz a lot. But one, of the, one of the differences is that Leibniz makes a distinction between things that are real substances, which are generally things that exist by nature, and things that are mere aggregates of many pieces. And some of the examples are very funny. A pair of diamonds glued together, the circle of men holding hands, uh, the Dutch East India Company or any corporation, the London School of Economics, I suppose, would not be a real substance for Leibniz, whereas for Latour, sure it could be, because the London School of Economics can undertake actions that no individual here can. Uh, so that's actors. It's a new attempt to not make any distinction between what's real and what's unreal. So what makes... Not everything's equally real for Latour, what makes something more real is, is strength, and strength comes from alliance. Something is more real the more allies it has. Uh, what makes quantum physics more real than witchcraft is not that quantum physics unveils the truth more directly than witchcraft for the tour, but simply that it has more, it's mobilized a larger network of supporters and of effects than witchcraft has been able to do. Uh, irreduction, third principle, is that nothing is either reducible or irreducible to anything else. You can reduce anything to anything else, if you can make it hold, if you are willing to pay the price. You can do what Freud did and reduce dreams to wish fulfillments, if you are willing to make a few sacrifices, and if you are willing to pass a few key steps that show how the transformation is possible. 
there's always going to be a translation, and a translation always changes the thing. Uh, this is why I love one of my favorite metaphors from Latour is the industrial metaphor for truth instead of the optical one. This is in Pandora's Hope. He says, instead of thinking of truth as something that's gradually unveiled, you think of truth as uh, oil buried deep in Saudi Arabia that's gradually translated into gas in a tank in France. All the steps it has to go through, all the refineries, all the uh, trucks that have to ship it. In each case, you, you're simply trying to preserve some essential core of the petroleum that's usable at the next stage. Uh, you're not unveiling the truth of the original petroleum. You're transforming it in such a way that it's usable. And I find this to be a very powerful metaphor for truth. Maybe my favorite one ever. And that's translation. The fourth major concept in the, in the book, in the introductions, and, and in the Torah's philosophy as a whole. It's any statement about anything is an oversimplification. And as he says repeatedly, there is no transport without transformation. To move something from its original location is to change it. Okay, now there are some problems with this. One of the problems is that actors are utterly concrete for Latour, and I would say too concrete. He says in introductions that everything happens in one time and one place only. In other words, a thing cannot be distinguished from its current environmental status or its current accidents. Uh, you cannot say here that this is a podium that can be picked up and moved to another building. For Latour, strictly speaking, it would then become a different thing. Because a thing is completely attached to all of its accidents and its entire environment and all of its relations. If you look back at the history of philosophy, you could say that substance, this traditional concept, makes a real thing. The substance is distinguished usually from either its qualities, its accidents, or its relations. In this case, the relations, you can say, I am standing a certain distance from each one of you, and if I move a greater distance from each of you, I have, according to common sense, not changed. I'm the same person, I've simply moved, I've changed my relation to all of you. Accidents, the fact that I'm wearing this shirt instead of the blue one, I could easily put on the other shirt today and, and been the same person. Uh, qualities, I guess we're talking about more essential qualities then. Are there certain basic features of my personality that could be changed? Am I still remain the same? Well, within a certain limits, yes. For the tour, really, there are no such distinctions between any of those three, three things. An actor is its exact sum total of all its relations, all of its accidents, and all of its qualities. And uh, this allies him with the tradition and history of philosophy known as occasionalism. And Latour was resisting this idea at first, but I think he's starting to see why he is one. Because the fact that an actor is so completely concrete and completely determinate, it can only be moved to a different situation by way of translation, and translation always changes things, means that nothing is really mobile. Paradoxically, everything is frozen in a specific place in time, and to establish an identity between the same thing that's moved through different situations, which you can do in Latour, is what he calls a trajectory. If you want to show that the city of London has retained a certain identity over all the centuries since Roman times, Yes, but it's obviously been transforming, it's been changing, you have to translate it and show each of those steps how it's the same, how it's roughly within the same physical location. And that takes a third actor to do it. Any two things, he says, are linked only by a third thing. That's one of the tourist's most profound ideas, I think. Uh, the, the best case history he gives of this is in Pandora's Hope when he's talking about Joliot and the French atomic bomb project, which was ended rather abruptly by the German invasion. Uh, uh, Joliot linked politics and neutrons. Was he the first person in history to do this? Well, probably. Uh, unless the American project, the American project was a few years behind. So Joliot probably was the first person to link the two. And it, it became clear to me that every, every actor is a kind of Joliot. Every actor is the only thing that can link two other actors. So for one thing to link to another, or one thing to transform into another, you need a third term mediating, mediating between them. And to go back to the occasionalist link, again, uh, in the history of philosophy, you have this issue that 
starting in Islamic theology in the 10th century in Iraq, you had uh, among one school a very literal interpretation of one passage of the Quran where God is doing everything literally himself. No, act, no other actors are doing anything but themselves. And this had a certain life in Islamic theology for a few centuries before reappearing in France, in Descartes, Baudemont, Malebranche, where for Descartes, God has to intervene from my, my being able to move my own body, since mind and, and body are two different kinds of substances, God must intervene to make that possible. For Malebranche, God must intervene even in inanimate collisions between two things. One back along the Arab way of looking at it. Um, I would argue that Humean skepticism is merely the upside-down version of this. Because in Hume, who was a great admirer of Malebranche, you also have the problem of not being able to establish how cause and effect occurs. It's simply re- the reverse problem. For the occasionalists, you have all these independent substances out there, and you don't know how they link. And so God is brought in to link them. With Hume, in a sense, the things are already linked. They're linked in the mind as habits, or as customs. The problem is showing whether they have any independence of our representation of them. So it's really just the upside-down problem. Uh, what ultimately excites me about Latour is I think he's the one who's going to get us out of this jam. I think Latour is the one who's going to be able to talk about the independence and the linkability of objects if we push him in a Heideggerian direction. I think Latour himself is too much about the networking and too much about the relations of things. By adding the Heideggerian dimension of withdrawal and invisibility and hiddenness and veiledness, this is how we start to escape from this occasionless deadlock, or a skeptical deadlock that led to Kant ultimately. So I think this is a, Latour gives us very important resources. This is a very interesting moment in the history of philosophy that he gives us. So, um, I've said that Latour talks about things in relational terms. He says that reality means resistance. A thing is real if it resists. A thing is real if it has effects on other things. You cannot say that there's a substance hiding behind the relations of a thing. You cannot say that a thing has potential right now that isn't actualized for Latour. Because to say that an acorn is potentially an oak tree, he thinks, is to be lazy. It's to do all the work in advance, instead of following each of the transformations that the acorn needs to go through with water and with soil and with all the other actors to gradually transform itself into a tree. You cannot say that the tree is enfolded in the acorn. A whole crowd of allies is needed for that process to happen. And so, too, for any of us in our potentials. The tour uh, simply condemns the term potentiality. He does not believe there is such a thing. Even in the case of logical proofs, or in the case of Euclid's geometry, he says all of Euclid's geometry is not potentially contained in the axioms. This is, no one's ever done it that way. It's very difficult to go through each of the proofs. I've done it. I, did, I had a course on it for a whole year where we went through all of Euclid's proofs, and it is very difficult, and you would never be able to predict it. Um, just like the, a food is not in the recipe, potentially, there are certain transformations that have to go on. The recipe helps you know which transformations to go through, but the food is not potentially present in the recipe. Okay, now, these, I think, are good points. The problem is there are, there are difficulties with claiming that a thing is merely its relations. And these were seen all the way back in Aristotle's time, in the metaphysics, when he criticizes the Megarians. The Megarians were an ancient school of philosophers, who I think we know about mostly from Aristotle's criticism of them, who said that there's no such thing as potentiality. Things merely are what they are right now. And so that if you are a house builder and you're not building a house right now, you essentially have the same status as someone who has no idea how to build a house because neither of you are building right now. Aristotle found this completely counterintuitive. And some of the points Aristotle makes against this, one is that there's, there's no reason for anything to change. One reason is that, you, obviously, it's counterintuitive to say there's no difference between a builder who's not building right now and someone who has no idea how to build. It just doesn't seem right to us. Another problem is that uh, why would anything change? If there's nothing held in reserve behind the world as it is right now, its current state of everything in the world, why would any of it ever change? If there's nothing behind it struggling to burst forth, creating tension, in the current state of things. There would seem to be no obvious reason why one moment of time would lead to another moment of time. 
And Latour is, is an occasionalist, I would say. He's, he's one of the modern occasionalists along with Whiteheads, in the sense that each moment of time is completely cut off from others, because you need to translate it to get to the next one. And each actor is completely cut off from the others, unless a third turn comes in and translates between the two. Everything is cut off, paradoxically. Latour, the great philosopher of networks and relations, leaves things frozen off in each other, in another sense. So, uh, we need to get through to Heidegger to help remedy this problem. And I'm going to say that the tour's actors are one-folds because everything is attached together in the thing. Everything is bound up together in the thing. There's no fissures or crevices in the thing. Whereas for Heidegger, actors are four-folds. And I'll put up Husserl, but I need to talk a little more about Heidegger first. Heidegger, one obvious element contained in his philosophy that is not contained in the tour's philosophy is this idea of things withdrawing from visibility. Uh, for the Torah, it would make no sense to say that there's a hidden table behind the table and, and how it relates to us. The Torah might add that the table has relations to all kinds of other actors in the environment, and all of those relations together make up the table. But there's nothing hidden for the Torah. This is anathema to the Torah. Hiddenness does not exist. There's a kind of imminence. Everything is on the same level of effects. Everything that affects anything else is real. The rest is, is rubbish. It's nonsense. It's not there. Whereas for Heidegger, the whole point is the point to a dimension that's is not adequately expressed in the environment right now. That's hidden. That's veiled. And that's what I identified with the tool analysis. I simply said that I don't think it has anything to do with praxis. It has nothing to do with pragmatic use of things, because our pragmatic use of things also never touches the full depth of the thing. Well, Heidegger has a famous fourfold in his later philosophy. I've got a few slides on that later. But that's what I'm building up towards. We, and any, there are many fourfold structures in the history of philosophy. This goes all the way back to Plato's divided line and Aristotle's four causes. In medieval philosophy, we've got Ariugna's four different types of entities, created and incapable of creation, uncreated and capable of creation. I won't go through the whole thing. But the, uh, Bacon's four idols. Uh, in semiotics, you've got a semiotic square. In McLuhan, you've got four different aspects of artifacts. Uh, these are all different fourfolds. What they all have in common is they arise from two dichotomies that cross. Anytime you have that, uh, you're going to get a fourfold structure in philosophy. And so the problem became how to understand what Heidegger's second principle of division was. Surprisingly, uh, I don't think anyone else before me even attempted to explain what Heidegger's fourfold meant. It was considered poetic jargon. It was considered hopelessly embarrassing. Even strict Heideggerians would, would mention it briefly in a couple of sentences and then move on. They were too embarrassed to even talk about it. They said it had something to do with Holderland's poems. It would never work out philosophically exactly what it meant. And I, so I started looking for it. And once you start looking for it, it becomes very obvious what it is. You have to be looking for it. Where it comes from is it comes from Husserl. We know that in Heidegger there's a difference between the veiled, underground reality of things that withdraws and hides from us, and from our, not only from our theory, but also from our practical actions. What about within the phenomenal realm? What about within the realm of visibility? Well, there is still a tension, and this is precisely what Husserl's entire philosophy is based on. Husserl lacks that grain of realism that you find in Heidegger's philosophy. Husserl is trying to describe things as they appear in consciousness, despite what some of his followers claim, that he's actually a realist. He's not. I'm sure of it. What you have in Husserl is the tension between a phenomenon, or an intentional object, an object in consciousness, and its qualities. If I circle around the desk and see it from different angles at different times, I'm not thinking that I'm seeing different objects in each instance. I'm focused on the same thing and merely seeing different profiles of it. So you've got a difference between a thing and its qualities within consciousness. This is Husserl's great discovery, I think. 
Whereas I've got British empiricism crossed out here because what's typical of Hume and Locke and Barclay is the idea that a substance is merely something added on by the human mind to bundle together some qualities. There really isn't anything in the thing other than the qualities, and we somehow kind of arbitrarily put them together, but that's our work. That's not in the things themselves. Uh, Husserl's second logical investigation is nothing but a, a relentless onslaught against this tradition. And he says that uh, consciousness is not made up of qualities, it's made up of objects. There are objects there, and we sort of subtract away the qualities and point at an underlying thing that stays the same, no matter how the qualities change. Now, this is different from Heidegger's dualism, because Heidegger's dualism is between visible things and invisible things. Husserl is simply talking about the visible layer. Uh, Heidegger's whole philosophy is designed to add that deeper layer to Husserl that's not there, the, the realm of real, real tools um, that never come to, to view. And so now in Husserl, I saw that we had this second principle of division. And this is really where the fourfold comes from. You've got a difference between the thing and its qualities on the visible level. You've got the same difference between the thing and its qualities on the hidden level. And so you've got a rupture within the objects themselves or within the actors themselves that the tour does not allow for. You know, why is this important? Let's see what my next slide is. Let's push Heidegger one step deeper. I've already said that Heidegger should not be read as saying there's a difference between praxis and theory. He's saying that the things themselves are even deeper than praxis. Well, here's the controversial point, but the inevitable one. We have to push Heidegger in the direction of saying that things also distort each other. Inanimate things also distort each other. It's not just humans that do this. It's not just some quirky feature of human theory or praxis that distorts the things. Relation itself does this. If one thing smacks into another, if fire is burning cotton, the same thing happens. Fire is not going to react to the smell of the cotton. It's not going to react to whether or not there are small insects in the cotton. The fire, fire, I'm not saying it's conscious, I'm not a panpsychist, but I'm saying that the fire does not react to all aspects of the cotton. It oversimplifies the cotton in order to burn it. The cotton itself is far richer than any flammable flammability that the fire encounters. And so inanimate objects also do this to each other too. So it's not, in a way, Heidegger's tool analysis doesn't tell us anything about the specific features of human being. It pushes it down to a far more abstract ontological level and talks about the difference between objects and relations. That's what it's really about in my reading. And you have to expand that to say that it's about, it's about all interrelations whatsoever. This is not completely new because you see this in Whitehead's. The problem is Whitehead cheats, unlike Latour. Whitehead says, how do things translate each other? They must do it by means of universal qualities, which Whitehead calls eternal objects. So if there's the same green in many different shirts, uh, all the entities are using this, they're borrowing this green from somewhere and using it to oversimplify this man's shirt, which actually has many different aspects to it, and my, my eyes are somehow oversimplifying it with universal green. And where is this green contained? It's containing gods. It's the old-fashioned occasionalism. Latour, despite being a fairly pious, pious Catholic, does not have recourse to gods at any key point of his philosophy. He makes the translations local. Uh, for my to be able to translate his shirt into a specific color, it does not pass through God. It simply has to do with my, my eyes and him. And so it's kind of secular occasionalism, the first secular occasionalism in history. There's an indirect relation between two things, but it's not at the level of God. It's not at the level of the human mind. It somehow happens in any relation between any two objects at all. So... How I read presence at hand. Presence at hand in Heidegger's book, Being in Time, has to do with what happens when a tool breaks. It becomes consciously visible. It becomes theoretically approachable. I simply read it as being more abstract and deeper as referring simply to the relationality of things. Anything that shows up in any kind of relation, whether it's a physical causal relation, uh, a theoretical one, a perceptual one, is simply not the thing itself. The thing itself is always going to be never quite grasped by any relation to it. And this, to me, is the central problem raised by Latour's philosophy. 
is act as though our one-folds, because both of the two principles of division that we find in Heidegger are missing. There is no deep veiled, hidden, withdrawn realm of reality for Rousseau. He'd laugh if you asked him if he believed in that. So the two things are real if they have effects. So if they're somehow on this plane of action where all the things in the world are exerting forces on each other, there's nothing hidden. And also an actor is not different from its accidents or its relations. I, the fact that I am this specific distance from the people in the front row is definitive for who I am as an actor for the tour. If I move here, I'm a different actor. Everything happens in one time and one place only. Some of the Torians think that's too extreme, but he's quite clear about it in the reductions. A thing happens in one time and one place only to show that a thing has identity over time. This is the British empiricist tradition, the Whiteheadian tradition that the tour follows. Uh, you have to draw a trajectory across all those different moments and show that there's a, an essential identity between them. There's not an enduring substance to a tour. And as I said before, in the case of Aristotle's critique of the Megarians, it's unclear if everything is completely expressed as what it is at any moment. It's, and nothing is hidden. I have no hidden potential. It's unclear how I can change. How can I change? The other problem is, since relations for the tour only occur through mediators, only through third terms, and if it's Jolio who links politics and neutrons, who links Jolio and politics, and who links Jolio and neutrons? There would have to be a term in between those linking them. And who would link those? And who would link those? So it would be an infinite regress. You would never be able to explain relations at all if you followed the tour. Uh, because there would always be a new mediator inserted between any two points, no matter how close they were. Now we have Heidegger's fourfold actor. Every entity is partly hidden, because you can never completely grasp it, whether you're human, animal, inanimate. You are never going to completely exhaust the depths of the thing. An actor, which is a term that Heidegger doesn't use, of course, he would say an entity, is intention with its accidents and relations, because it will somehow be deeper than them, as Husserl saw. A thing is not the same as whatever profile you happen to be seeing it from. It's deeper than that. Uh, the problem, yeah, po apparently pompous pseudo-poetic terminology. This is the problem with Heidegger's fourfold actor. It's, if you read it, you can't make heads or tails of it unless you work for several years on it, which is what, took me about three and a half years to figure it out once I started. Otherwise, it just sounds like he's pulling random poetic terminology out of Husserl's hymns, and I've got a chart here with, yeah, here it is, the fourfold. Heidegger, I call it the product launch, ran in December 1949 is when Heidegger unveiled the fourfolds. It was present much earlier in his philosophy, simply not under that name. I, I found it all the way back in 1919 in his reading of Husserl. But it first takes this name in 1949, Earth, Sky, Gods, and Mortals. And so there are sometimes attempts to say Heidegger's talking about the holy because there are gods here, but the gods here turn out to have nothing at all to do with gods in the narrow sense. These these four terms are found in any entity at all, any object at all, any actor at all has these four terms. Um, this, I should say there's circumstantial evidence for this being very important for Heidegger's career. This lecture is so ignored. It's actually four short lectures totaling about three and a half hours. Uh, it hasn't even been fully translated into English yet, but you, you may, if you've read much Heidegger from the later period, you know some of this work because it's been cut up into a lot of spin-off essays. There is the question concerning technology. It's one of the four... The Thing is another one of the four. The other two, I, I don't think, survive in short form. The Danger and the Turn are the other two. Uh, this was his first public appearance after the war. And so he was saving something very special for this. And all of the work from the 1950s on language and all of the stuff about technology and the thing comes directly from this, this set of lectures. So it's, it's, it's all this talk about what's Heidegger's second major work after being in time. People usually want to say it's the contributions to philosophy, which I think is pretty awful, actually. It was half-baked and did some more work. Some people want to say it's those lectures on boredom and animal life from 1929 and 30. Interesting, but fails. This is really the second masterwork, and it, it's, I've heard it's being translated in English. 
into English. It's called Einblick in das was ist, or Insight into what is. Should be out in a couple of years in English, I hope. Here's the charts. This is what Heidegger's fourfold means. Here you have the visible worlds. Here you have this concealed, withdrawn world of tools. So I've got tools here, broken tools. Readiness to hand, so and height, Juan and height, presence at hand. This is the concealed world for Heidegger, the revealed world. So you've got these two. And then how do you split between these two? This has to do with the specific qualities of things. And this has to do with the unity of things. Although for Heidegger, it's a little different. For Heidegger, it's the unity of the world as a whole. Why is it mortals? Because mortals are the ones who experience death as death, he says. And death frees us from all particular beings. The angst we experience when we, we comport ourselves towards death reveals the world as a whole. No longer split up into individual beings. Whereas the way he describes sky in all of these essays has to do with the particularity of things, the specific features. Now, I, just, I simply use Husserl's version of this instead of Heidegger's. For Husserl, each individual thing belongs here, not the world as a whole. I would say that there is no world as a whole, I think. Uh, whereas Heidegger thinks this term refers to totality. And Earth also, when he talks about Earth, it's always in the singular. Earth is this hidden force that gathers and shelters and spreads its juices out throughout everything. Whereas this has to do with particularity. It doesn't have to do with gods, literally, any more than this has to do with Earth, literally. Uh, so something up in the sky also is, is characterized by Earth. It's not that things way up in the sky are sky and things down here are Earth and Indra and Wotan and Zeus are gods and people are mortals. I mean, this is, Heidegger never writes philosophy in that sense. He doesn't split things up into four specific kinds of objects. These are four dimensions present in every object. Okay. Now, we get to the plasma in Latour. Something that Peter has, has reminded me of the importance of. This appears, I think, only in his new book, Reassembling the Social. Uh, this introduction to Action Network Theory that he wrote. This seems to be Latour finally seeing that he can't account for things purely in relational terms. He doesn't go into this as much as he should in the new book. The plasma, he says, if networks were the size of the London Underground, the plasma would be the remainder of London. Now, if you know Latour well, this is a shocking statement. Because normally it's hard to see anything existing outside of networks for Latour. Everything is relational. Everything gains its reality only from allies. And now suddenly, maybe it's Latour who had a turn and not Heidegger. Maybe, maybe Latour is entering the chaos of his career. Networks now turn out to be a very small size of reality, and plasma is this kind of unthematized, rumbling, dark, outside. How do we know it's there? We know it's there because networks collapse very suddenly, which what says in the book now. Why does the Soviet Union vanish overnight without anyone predicting it? Why does... Well, it's got a nice, nice page full of examples. Uh, why, do, why do networks, which seems fully sleek and deployed sometimes, and fully articulated, all the elements articulated with respect to one another, why do networks suddenly collapse? Well, it's because there are forces emerging from the plasma. And this is its strength. Its strength is that it can help solve the problem that Thor has with knowing how networks can never change. There is a weakness, however, and the weakness is that he doesn't seem to think the plasma has any articulation, or at least I can't detect that in his books. He seems to think the plasma is just this big lump, and every now and then it surges up and creates atmospheric effects in the visible world, so the world of actors... And I don't like this because I've already been through this with Levinas, who's otherwise one of the great readers of Heidegger. Levinas also thinks being itself is a big rumbling hole and only human consciousness breaks it into parts, which is completely counterintuitive, of course. The idea that the world itself is unarticulated until I break it up into pieces. Um, so it seems to be maybe Latour is slipping into Levinas's problem with this when he says the world as a whole is, is simply sleek. And this goes all the way back to pre-Socratic philosophy. They had the Atheron, which was completely indeterminate, 
Intel for Anaxagoras, Noose, Mind, started spinning it in a circle very fast and it broke into pieces. So it's actually a pre-Socratic idea, but only the mind gives things determinacy. And so I, I would say this is why the plasma won't quite do it, unless the tour adds some articulateness to the things prior to their becoming involved in relations. It might be a step too far for him, but that's what he has to do. There's a nice map of the underground. Look how small the networks are compared to all this space in and above London. All this plasma, that cannot be mapped. So what we need is a Latourianized fourfolds. We need to steer Latour away from this idea that the actor is completely defined by all of its traits, that an actor is completely defined by all of its relations. We need to rediscover the substance of things. We need to rediscover that actors have a determinacy that is not fully articulate in any moments. In fact, it's much vaster, like the plasma, than any of its visible effects on other things, or any of its invisible effects on other things. Something that something that characterizes actors so deeply and yet is never fully expressed. But unlike Latour's plasma, is not this global rumbling force that simply surges up and affects all the networks, but it has parts. That you have real objects that are not entirely involved in, in relations, that are not entirely involved in alliances. This is my very dramatic final slide. Heidegger's future is Latour, Latour's future is Heidegger. And I wish Latour were here now in the front row so that I could see his eyebrows Right. So he would be appalled by this. Um, sorry? Ezra Heidegger. If he was Ezra Heidegger, yes. I cannot imagine Heidegger reading Latour either. At least, at least in Latour's case, we can empirically test it and find that he doesn't have any interest. When I first got to know Latour, uh, he decided, since he had met me, to reread Being in Time for the first time in 20 years. I, should I not be saying this on tape? Uh, he reread Being in Time and just didn't get much out of it, which is very surprising. Uh, uh, because the, com the commonalities are strong enough that all of the, many of us independently came to see that there are some common links that should be built uh, between them. But yeah, Heidegger might even be more appalled. I cannot imagine Heidegger liking any one of Luthor's books. Um, and there's that wonderful part in We Have Never Been Modern where he's mocking Heidegger's philosophy of technology, but here too the gods are present in Adidas shoes no less than in hand-carved wooden clogs, in shopkeeper's calculations, no less than in Holderland's heart-rending verse. It's one of the wonderful sarcastic passages of contemporary philosophy. So that is the last slides, and I will now take your questions. I don't, I don't want to get into the mechanics of the fourfold here, which is what my next book is about. This is not a philosophy audience, but if you want to find out more about that, I'm at work on a manuscript now called Object-Oriented Philosophy that is trying to do exactly what I laid out here today in the, in the talk. It's a Heideggerianized Latour or Latourized Heidegger. We'll see what Latour thinks. It's, this is not the manuscript that's available for circulation. This one won't be done for another seven or eight months. Uh, but if you want to see my manuscript on Latour and uh, on Latour's metaphysics, I'm willing to send that to anybody because I want as many of you to see it as possible before Latour does. I want to be insulated psychologically from his reactions, whether they're good or bad. So please request it if you want. And with that, I will take your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, fascinating and uh, thought-provoking um, talk. Um, we have uh, um, Jonathan. Let's start now. Uh, can you go back over the consequence of your integration for concepts of change? Because I still don't see how you uh, you ridicule plasma as a mechanism for, for change, uh, and you 
don't see where it is in Imatur at all. So importing Heidegger into it doesn't seem to solve it yet, as you said, you described it. You, you run contrast. Oh, I don't think I ridiculed it. I just don't think it's going to work any more than Levinas's definition of being is uh, an unarticulated lump words. It's it's certainly a new concept in the tour. I think I don't remember any other places in his prior works where he hinted at it. So it's something novel, and I'm glad that he's moving in that direction. Uh, where where you find something a little better in Heidegger is in the moment of gods. The fact that things are articulated. Not, things are not simply earth. They're not one unified empire. Things are broken up into parts. There are actors at the pre-relational level. Now, uh, where you go with that, uh, I wanted to stay away from some of the mechanics of this, but what you, I think what you have to end up doing is saying that there is a place where actors can meet. It doesn't involve an infinite regress of third terms coming in between, and that is on the interior of a third object. The interior of a third object, with the best example of that, but a strange one, being perception, or, or human consciousness, or intentionality in general. Because here I am. Here I am, a real thing making contacts with perceptual things without fusing into them. There's a kind of proximity here in perception. With the real me and, and exaggerated caricatures of all of you that I'm seeing, this has to be the model. The model that the inside, of, inside of any intentional relationship, at least the human one, and I think all, you've got a, a real perceiver making contact without fusing into perceptual things. I think that's the place that contact, the only place contact can occur. And uh, that's a very naughty problem. But I, as far as your question about how, how Heidegger adds to this? Now, how are you going to get Latour to, to have um, an explanation of things? Intentionality will do it in a very narrow sense. I don't think it is going to give us a, a general concept of how change occurs in, in uh, a complex structure, an organization like the LSA. It can if you broaden intentionality to also include the relations between inanimate objects, which is becoming more and more common. It's not by any means a majority view yet, but physical intentionality is becoming a little more acceptable in some quarters. Um, I don't know if you can get Latour's philosophy in its current form to account for change. I think, it's, I think he's stuck in the same position the Nigerians were. It's going to be a permanent weakness unless he really, radic- really had a turn, really radicalized what he thinks the plasma is. And maybe you can. I just don't see him as, he doesn't seem plagued by this problem. He doesn't seem to worry about how change occurs. Yes? On the same, on the same um, issue, I mean, it seems to me that your description of actors in actor network theory is a bit sort of uh, one-dimensional because you didn't speak about the idea of black boxes and above all installed base, which is where historicity really comes in. And it's surely when some installed base actually doesn't uh, hold together anymore the, the breakthroughs and the changes happen. I'm also thinking of you know what Calon has done with the hot and cold controversies. Mm-hmm. Some of the sort of people who studied say markets and economics, it's very easy to see how you know a a small breakdown in a minor, tiny little um, component then so propagates through uh, you know very rapidly and links lots of previously separate. Uh, actor networks into that particular breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's sort of fairly, fairly intuitive how change is explained. Well, I think he merely presupposes it. Uh, if the install base breaks down, why would it break down? If you really had a system, if you really had a model of the world where everything was completely defined by its relations, why would those relations ever change? It's defined by its relation to them, they're defined by its relation to it. 
And so if you want to get into the metaphysics of it, there's really no reason why we would ever move from one state to another. And that's what I was trying to explain. But, yeah. but I think this is why he's sort of always very um, uh, uh, keen to sort of like quote Hughes and the reverse salience and these kind of things. I think when one starts to look at empirical evidence of these things, it's quite easy to see how they happen, whether it's in IT or other uh, kind of technological settings. So, you know, um, old components that no longer can can, can can keep up with some of the other breakthroughs that happened in, in the ones that they're related to. Um, if you look around the world, it's easy to see these changes happening. The question is how you explain it philosophically. And I don't think the model of defining things completely as relations is going to work. I think there has to be something in the things outside of the relations for any changes ever to happen. So I, I agree that his methodology functions brilliantly without ever really addressing this question. But he aspires to be a metaphysician. He says this more and more all the time. And if he does, this is a question that needs to be addressed by his philosophy. And it's one way he's got to answer objections. So uh, I, I think that it's merely presupposed rather than explains how changes occur. As for black boxes, oh, you, want to, you want to say something first? Okay. Just, just on the same point, I, I've read some, some of the recent things he wrote in, 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 in an article, actually, on a Greek website, about this idea of um, explication, how actually by, by um, pushing your network outwards, you're actually revealing the world in great and great detail. Right. And that is actually, you know, through the process of actually trying to expand your network, you are actually revealing the world, revealing hidden properties and objects, etc. Right, but then again, you're really presupposing that an actor is able to push out. We know, we know from experience that actors always are constantly pushing out and things are not staying the same. But how do you explain this if you start by defining an actor as completely determinate in terms of its current relations? There's simply no reason why, if I'm defined by my relations to all of you now, that I would be able to enter a new state of relations to you a moment from now. Uh, if there's nothing in me held in reserve behind those relations, there's no substance at all. It doesn't, it's philosophically incoherent, I would say. And I think it's a question he has to answer. Uh, as far as... You want to say something else about that? I want to get back yeah, to the black box. Just on that point, sir, because I think ontologically that, that's a key point, because um, he he's not saying that there isn't a reality out there. I think he, he presupposes there is. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, if the social construction comes the way we understand that reality, so therefore it's, it's always there. We're always going to reveal something more of it as we find new ways of explaining it to ourselves and using it. Um, in our interactions. This whole sort of translating from things mm -hmm. to human, uh, uh, from the world of things to the world of humans, that whole sort of uh, 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 relationship and all the translations that go into that, for example, you know, the uh, Amazonian uh, earth scientists. Yes. The, um, oh, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to be rude, it's just a few more um, questions in the in so I'll okay, I'll just answer this one. For me, the problem is not that Latour doesn't say there's a reality out there. I, I think those criticisms of Latour from mainstream science people are, are not quite getting at the heart of the matter. For me, the point is not that he's an anti-realist, it's that he's a relationist. There is a reality out there, but it's completely defined in relational terms. And that's what I'm addressing. I, I've never claimed in this talk today that he's not a realist. I think he is. I think there's some moments where he slips away from that. It's like when he says that the the tuberculosis bacillus couldn't have killed Ramses II because it wasn't discovered yet, and so that's can't say that he was killed by tuberculosis any more than by a machine gun. That's okay. Those are moments, I think, where he slips. I don't think that's really the core of his position. The core of his position is similar to Whitehead's. It's that uh, you have a metaphysics of relations. Uh, again, if a thing is defined solely by its relations, I just don't see any way to move from one step to the next. I think that's a problem with all such theories. As for black boxes, I didn't mention them, but they were present in my talk, because I talked about how 
uh, actors is one of the first major concepts, which means you have actors of all different sizes, all different levels, which means they're all black boxes. You can always open them and look at the components. Whereas you, you don't have that in Leibniz because there's only one kind of black box that's the monads. There's not different sizes of them. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, let's say I have same uh, way of thinking as uh, it was addressed before. One of my problems with Latour, and I think that it's been a little bit overcome by John Law, is the ontological and epistemological distinction of the relational dimension and the nature of actors and networks. And the what? The, 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 the nature of actors and networks. The way in which I read actor network theory is that the ontology is in the relational dimension. And so in one way, actors do not pre-exist the relationship. This is one of the assertions of John Law. And that is my usual critiques to presenting AMT, I'm sorry, as you did today, saying that human and non-human are presented at the same level. Actually, they do not exist. They do not pre-exist interaction. And so if we present this distinction between human and non-human, we are assuming an ontological essence of humans and non-humans that I think is not part of AMT from an ontological point. Oh, I don't think I was assuming an essence. I'm just saying that any actor you can think of is on the same level as any other. You can't start with a pre-existing hierarchy. Well, the, 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 on this question is, to me, the ontological <coughs> essence of AMT is in the relationship. So you are what you are in mm -hmm. the moment of time in which you are. Mm -hmm. And then there is the epistemological dimension that is, how do we study? And that is where Latour says, we can only trace back actors, but we cannot see uh, the dynamics that shape the actors. Mm -hmm. this, this is what he has been saying for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And my question is, if we make a distinction and we say that, for example, the network is an epistemological approach to study the relationships, and actors are, or black boxes, are a way to define epistemological the object of the study, but not to define it ontologically wise, mm -hmm. are we not able to supersede this distinction between, you know, the relationships and the actors that he seems being part of the core of, of your argument and posing the ontological focus on the relationship. So, in one way, we are not anymore in a situation where, you know, objects are uh, studied or conceived outside the relationships. I think it simply shifts the problem, because if you have a relationship, in many ways you have another kind of objects. Why? Because what are the real features of an object? The traditional features of an object, I would say, are wrong. The durability physical hardness, um, other, other such features. What, what really characterizes an object, I think, is something that can be, can have different attributes at different times, as Aristotle says, that's what makes a substance. Something that can have, have different relations, something that's never exhausted by its relations. And I think all that is true of a relation. If you have a real relation between two things, it can be viewed from different ways from the outside. But then is that relation only defined in terms of its relation to other things? So I think it just pushes the problem another step further. At some point, you've got to have reality that's not, where you're not passing the buck defining it in terms of some other relation. There's got to be some reality of things that isn't just defined by the outsides. And I don't see how you're going to get out of that problem if you take this step. It's just but going to get more extreme. The way in which I read AMT, and, and then I stop because I know there are other people, and maybe we can discuss it wrong, <coughs> is that you know, the problem of the relationship is active. And that I think Latour is saying as well. We artificially define the dimension of the network. Now the point is that if we analyze everything is in, the, in, is in this room, can be clearly interconnected to other relations that they shape or characterize, let's call this object in this way. And to me, it's almost impossible ontologically wise to define where an object finishes and the other one starts. Mm -hmm. And then is the relationship is to me is the ontological 
essence in one way. And objects do not exist outside relationships. And relationships do not exist outside objects. And I think this is the key definition of John Law, where you know the two things do not pre-exist each other. And then it's only the relationship that is shaping them. I'm not sure that the Torah even thinks they pre-exist each other. That's one of my problems with him. If you're saying that everything exists at one time and one place only, it can't exist until it exists. It can't exist until its set of relations is activated, and then it exists. And yes, it does seem to, to have some relation to something that happened immediately before. There's only a trajectory linking them. Okay, that, that, okay, but to me, that is an epistemological distinction because we cannot study the continuous. But time is not, you know, is not. Uh, we cannot actually, art- we can only artificially distinguish uh, moments of time. That sounds like Bergson. The tour is the anti Bergson, I think. No, but, but I, I'm, not, I'm not supporting that. I have long discussion about this with the tour. But the point is, what you're saying is artificial. There is, you're saying time, and you're making time, you know, clearly defined. But how can you define? He's the one who does that, not me. I don't agree with it. He says in the reductions very clearly that a thing is completely defined by all of its concrete. Yeah, but, are, but I think John Latour is, uh, John Lewis is not saying that. Okay, I don't know law as well. I don't have to take your word for it. Okay. But it sounded to me like law was saying that even more, based on what you said. If you're saying law thinks a thing only exists as soon as it relates, and no, no, more extreme no, well, the, okay, the point is the relationship is always shaping and reshaping. So there is not a moment of time, if not as you know, an artificial way to study the past. Okay, but then you actually bring in some sort of notion of flux or becoming that's outside of the specific state of the actors, and you have to establish that philosophically too. That's what Bergson and Deleuze do. That has different problems. That has different problems. Alexi, I have a comment on your presentation. Uh, obviously, I'm not able to comment your uh, content, and I'm happy to see so many of our senior academics here to kind of enter the discussion. Uh, we heard here, I think, very uh, kind of excellent uh, philosophical reading of Latour, and because we have a lot of uh, students here, and uh, the active network theory is obviously when we start our PhD thesis, kind of one option that okay, I take Acton Network theory and apply it. And I think uh, it was not probably on your agenda, but to make it very nicely clear that actually Plateau uh, is philosophically quite uh, sophisticated mm-hmm. and requires quite a lot of, kind of anybody who was going to apply it has to do his or her homework very carefully, because I like it, and I, I have to say that your uh, in your manuscript, it's the best introduction to Latour I have ever read, and the most, the clearest introduction. And, and uh, but on the other hand, uh, I have to say that I'm bugged by very many uh, empirical case studies that say that they apply actor network theory. And when you read it, kind of, where's the actor network theory? Even I can see that there is very little Latour there. So I think you give a very good lesson in that sense that. Uh, we are going to apply this theory mm-hmm. to empirical world. Have to do a lot of homework first here, and I can recommend that your the first part of your book for anybody who wants to go into actor network theory. It's a very good introduction to it. But as many people may know, Latour did start as a pure philosopher by training. This was his early education, very classical Jesuit philosophy education. The detour occurred when he was in Africa when he met Guillemin who invited him to San Diego to Salk's lab, and this is when he started doing the anthropology of the sciences. And so he simply hasn't been working much on the kinds of things philosophers usually work on, history of philosophy texts. Uh, but that's still really what, how he wants to see himself. And I think one of the reasons he's excited about the, the event in February is that uh, 
he doesn't get treated as a philosopher very much. And that's how he sees himself. That's how he sees his work uh, shaping up as his legacy. Um, there was a question back here. Thanks. Experience shows us that things obviously do change, and the question is, how does he account for it? Potential is the way he rejects to account for it. Can you repeat the question? Yes. I it was about potential, and it was about uh, uh, whether... The relation to have potential to evolve and change? Yeah. Don't, don't, don't worry, networks have the potential to evolve and change. Well, empirically, yes. Now, how does Latour account for this? He doesn't do it by through the route of potentiality, because he thinks this means something is implicitly contained and it's merely unfolding, and it's a very unlatorian idea. For him, you change by forming other alliances. So the acorns become a tree, forms other alliances. It doesn't, from within, unfold. There may be something in there that allows it to move on to the next stage of its development, but it's not a potential that's in the thing. And he goes so far, as I pointed out, to say that even about basic logical deductions. If one logical deduction is not contained in another. This is why he really loves this new book by Ravio Metz about the origin of Greek geometry. I don't know if people know this. This is Latour's favorite book now. It's about the origin of Greek uh, deductive reasoning in geometry which this guy is claiming, among other, among other things, that the diagram is essential. The diagram is not just there as a random prop, but it's, you need, the diagram is a, a medium of translation. The proofs in, in, in Greek geometry are not explicitly contained in the axioms, and you have to work very difficultly to make translation from one step to another. So even there, the source sees potentiality is not working in logical deduction, which is a pretty extreme claim. You can't operate in distance. say before this talk if somebody asked that. Because I'm not really, I was hoping he would help me. It's, it's better than last year, though, when I was at the AA, the Architectural Association, and they, they turned to me and said, so how does object-oriented philosophy apply to this bicycle path? And I, I really had no idea. <laughs> that was really embarrassing. But uh, in this case, I suppose you would have to find some methodological way to account for something in the things that resists their current application. I really don't know. I, I, I can't offer any concrete proposals for how to change your methodology at ANT to account for Heidegger's withdrawn objects. Um, I wish I could. Maybe one of you will be the ones to, to tell me how to do this. I really hope. Yes. Uh, thank you, Brett. That's fantastic. Uh, I just want to actually pick up some of that point and, and uh, your point as well. Uh, and, and also, I think it's it's we shouldn't fall into the trap of if everything is defined by its relations, then 
we focus on the relations, and they constitute the relation as a new, a different object that now needs study. So we turn the relation into some, some substance that now needs to be studied, because that's one of the problems in terms of how people have applied actor network theory is applying actor network theory then becomes a way of, of finding relations mm -hmm. and describing relations, etc. Et mm -hmm. It seems to me that would be Twitter rightly would be horrified uh, by such a such a move. Because that would exactly turn the relation into the into an object. And the relation is, is always enacted. There's always translation. There's always work needed. The relation is not there. The relation needs to be worked out through this translation that, that's on, ongoing. It always requires another actor uh, to, 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 do, to do the translation. So, so in that sense, it, I think I'm just in terms of guarding against the idea of now, if, if, there is no, if there is no actor, it's only a relation, let's go find the relations. You see what I mean? That's, okay, that's, but isn't this what a black box is? Black box is a set of relations that has somehow become constituted more or less as an actor in its own right. right. And that's obviously important to the tour. And we can open up the black box and look at it any time we want. What is the danger you see exactly? My, da my, my the, the, the danger seems to me is, is exactly to turn the black box into some substance that is the black box. And the way to understand the black box is to find the relations, and then we try and find the relations. But all we're going to find is other black boxes. Right, right. that's right. right. We're not going to find the relation. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I mean, because I know that we're uh, always, in terms of the graph idea, it always goes ballistic when you start to draw bubbles and lines between the bubbles. Ah. And so there's the actors, and the line is the relation. Mm -hmm. And then we say, well, where's the relation? We have to find the relation, we have to account for it, describe it, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not, it's not bubbles with lines. Right? It's just bubbles within bubbles within bubbles That's within right. bubbles. Exactly. And, and, and every bubble is a new actor. Yes, right. So I'm just in terms of applying it, that's one of the dangers in the way which people think about it. Uh, and also the point you made about yeah. the way In terms of the general problem of using this, uh, these ideas, what we what we mustn't forget is that the theory is an actor, and that the work to apply it is a process of translation that needs work. Mm -hmm. Right. That the, the theory is, or the ideas are not things in themselves, mm -hmm. which now needs to be trans. Well, like, like now needs to be interpreted and made specific. Mm -hmm in concrete instances or concrete examples. Mm -hmm. So the empirical and the theoretical, the divide which these ideas exactly goes against, is, is underlying the idea of applying the theory to some empirical examples. So I think it's a dangerous route to talk about applying actor network theory. It's an unfortunate word. Yes, very Applying it. Applying or using. I wonder yeah. very often, how do we change our vocabulary not to get into this awful trap of mechanistically somehow. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the words do signify the mistakes you make. We apply, we use theories. <coughs> How else can we talk about that? How do you philosophers uh, refer to <laughs> the thinking through 
I guess it's not a bigger problem for us because we rarely apply anything to anything. <laughs> because of our vices, we escape this problem. Um, one of the most uh, troubling uh, ideas in uh, Latour's work uh, in IS community appears to be, not for me, but I see everybody else agonizing. I guess not for me because I don't know, my mind that doesn't reach that far. But you triggered that, I suppose. But the, 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 the thing that is more difficult for people to accept somehow it offends them is the physical intentionality. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit about that and how, in a way, that uh, Heideggerian, uh, Laturian fusion might um, address that, or if it addresses that at all? I've been shocked by this, too. I had a friend of mine refused to read the tour because of the term negotiation. He said the tour is anthropomorphizing all the inanimate ne- yes. actors just because he says negotiation. Yes. It's purely metaphorical. Think about this negotiating a curve. Um, obviously, inanimate objects are capable of some sort of agency mm-hmm. because you can't do the same things when they're there as when they're not there. I don't know why there's this tendency to confuse agency with consciousness. Um, this is why, in my own work, I try to go down to a way more bare-bones level than consciousness. Why build consciousness into the very fabric of the universe is one of the two basic structures, any more than backbones or glass or any other big jump in the history of the world. Uh, the appearance of amphibians, stars. Why is it that consciousness seems so special and important to people that they have to put it into the starting point of philosophy as one of the two basic kinds of things that exist, either inanimate collisions or consciousness? I don't think there is any reason to do that. Um, so I share your, your puzzlements over why this bothers people so much. Um, I'm also, the other interesting thing about the tour is that he gets attacked from opposite directions for opposite reasons, which I think is usually a good sign. Um, I, can, I can claim the responsibility for urging him to write that Why is Critique Went Out of Steam article, because I was telling him in America he's viewed too much as just another French relativist who's turning everything into social construction. And he was, he was strangely surprised by that. I'm surprised that he was surprised after the so-called hope and everything. But he said, no, he's used to being attacked in France by the Bourdieuians as being a sellout, fossilized, arch-reactionary realist. <laughs> That's the side he gets attacked from in France more often. Uh, then in America, it's the other direction. Um, so I think that's a very good sign. As far as you know, how to convince people that inanimate agency is not a problem, I, I have the same issue in my own conversation with people. Did we get something in there from Heidegger's uh, view about something more deep in beyond the appearances? Yes. yes, and I should say that I don't think there's a turn in Heidegger, but he does become more consciously aware of this possibility, because in being in time, the tools really are completely defined by Dasein and the system of tools links together in a way that serves my life, and this yes. is what their meaning is, but then if you go to the thing, he specifically says that the jug that holds the wine is specifically not that. It's, it was produced by someone, but that's accidental. It's not. It doesn't exist because it was produced. It was produced only because it is. And now that it is, it holds the wine yes. and cradles the wine. And so it does have agency, obviously, uh, even for Heidegger. Yes? Can I just on, on the agency? Yeah. You gave the example of the floor. And I think the floor, that, yeah. Floor, as, as something that clearly affects what we're doing in this room. That's right. So, so I think that kind of Heideggerian explanation for all of these things that we relate to but don't intentionally think of yes. might be a, a way of at least presenting
that, the Heideggerian way of looking at it is very helpful. And you just remind me of something else that puzzles me, which is that people always swing from one extreme to the other. Either there's this Cartesian dualism where everything's either thinking mind or unthinking substance, or else thinking must be everywhere. Every, even, even the poor must be thinking. And psychism, which is coming back in fashion again. I've seen a few books out about this now. Yeah, amazingly. Amazingly. And, oh, I'm sorry, I... Yeah, you said it uh, just now that uh, Latour uses the notion of negotiation of authority. As I believe he uses many other concepts of translation, for example. And uh, even the notion of acting from the language. The then question I have, and also the source of my perspective, Some reason. I, don't, I don't know of any other way to write well than to 
do that. How, how can you write very well? But using metaphors. Yeah, using metaphors. But I mean, you know, metaphors are a way of seeing and a way of not seeing. You know, I mean, sometimes when I read Latour, you know, I always think about what you cannot grasp by using it. Using, I wouldn't call it theory because it's not a theory, but it's a, I don't know what it is. So, what is not grasped? Just take one example. For example, I, I, I have some kind of empirical problems in the description of change processes in complex institutional settings, which, you know, if I, have, if, I, if I had to use, if I had to go where he goes, I would miss a lot of phenomena. I mean, now I can't explain it too much, but what, what sorts of phenomena is what I have in mind? How are they outside of the actor network paradigm? I think that uh, the notion of translation is much more painful and laborious and, uh, and, uh, and problematic than the way he uses and the way he reacts you know, all these connections, you jump and you jump there and you jump there, and it's, it doesn't really work. I mean, it's, the, 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 it's much more painful and the, the country too, you know, the perverse effects and, the, and the things don't work and the, the way you, uh, but I'm not saying that that cannot be used, you know, I mean, I mean that, uh, it, it's, I mean, it, it has to be a theory, you know. Well, you must give me ways of being out and being in. If you don't give me that kind of freedom, then, you know, your credibility goes down as a theory. You must be dealing with some pretty amazing institutional problems, because I just reread the Pasteur book, and I was surprised by how excruciating and laborious was for Pasteur to spread his ideas. The long, I don't know if it's fresh in your mind, but all the stories that he tells about the hygienists were allies and the doctors were opponents. It's a very, it takes decades for this to play out. And it was almost painful to read again. So yeah, you must be doing something even worse than Pasteur. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I have a Thank you. 
kinds of questions that you've raised mm -hmm. about if it's all in the relations, how do relations change? Mm -hmm. uh, Well, yes, and I hope I wasn't sounding harsh in it at all. I, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I find the Pasteur case study masterful, and I find his other case studies generally masterful. I know how hard he works on these. There's always more work than shows up in the. He's picking the best of the best usually when he gives his case studies. I'm really sorry, we are coming up to the uh, sort of our time. I'm actually at that uh, uh, Lucas and uh, Crisanti, uh, so uh, let's see how we can squeeze that all, all, all that in and then you are the third one. Okay. <laughs> and, and that will probably have to be the last question. Uh, uh, just two things. Uh, co comments, maybe based on questions asked. Uh, I think the question, the reason why consciousness is always brought up, mm -hmm. and the reason why agency. Uh, Inevitably, in, in, in most people's minds, agency inevitably has to be human agency, or all agency is originally human in some way, mm -hmm. is, is linked to the problem of social organization in as much as we, we want something to be responsible. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of responsibility and the way we organize society, the way we want to allocate blame or, or allocate uh, success or allocate whatever. Uh, that we require human intentionality as, as a way of explaining or accounting for, for things. And I think that's, that's you know, and, and because um, philosophy was often written from the point of epistemology, it was always the questions we ask about the world. Mm -hmm. So since we are asking the questions about the world, it's our consciousness that's not again to think something that's So I think it's a, it's a human, it's because this is a human project. And we start with ourselves, uh, and in that sense, uh, and, and we want to account for the world in our terms, and then for you know, human agency, human intentionality figures very largely. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really difficult step to move away from that. Yes, we have a really difficult step, which comes back to this question of, which is the second comment I want to raise, and this is about whether translation is metaphorical. The question of translation, I think it's not. Mm -hmm. I think it means it literally. And I think he means it in the sense that when you put the cup down mm -hmm. on the table, they, there is a translation in as much as the, the cup is, is encountered by the table or the way in which the, those two actors encounter each other is in terms of that which is relevant in that encounter, which is uh, the, cup, the table translates the cup as a weight or whatever, uh, and which is different to what I'm looking at the cup. I look at the cup, I translate it as something to drink with or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So the, the encounter between me and the cup is no different to the encounter between the cup and the table. Right. In terms of translation. Right. So right. it's literal. It's not metaphorical. It has to be said that Latour doesn't do as much of that as he could have. He, since he's focused on the philosophy of science, there is a human observer there. I, I can't think of any cases where the sewer actually analyzes simply the relation between two things with no human right. presence. Yes, that's true. Whereas Whitehead does it. Whitehead is his great philosophical inspiration. does do this, at least in principle, more than the tour does. But I think the tour leaves the, the door open for that when he says that two things translate each other just as we translate them. Yeah. So I think it's wrong to say, as some people do, that he's reducing everything to a human perception, which is what Delanda is going to say in his next book, I believe, when he criticizes the tour. Manuel Delanda, the great Delusian in New York, um, who 
I didn't know uh, that uh, is a devout Catholic that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, how important is this in uh, the way he, he develops his ideas and how, again, that compares with... I've got a couple of things to say about that. People have talked about this. He's certainly more a Catholic philosopher than a Protestant philosopher. There are all these mediators which the Protestants were trying to get rid of. Get rid of all the saints, get rid of all the rituals, have a direct relationship with God, read the Bible yourself. And so uh, many people have talked, at least in private, I don't know if this has been published yet, but many people have said that Tour is a very Catholic philosopher. He's going through all these intermediaries to reach... So not only the religiosity of him, but the specific... Yes. Uh, That's right. Theology. As far as the religiosity, you know, he does have the one book, Jubilee. The, one of, one of Latour's remarkable theological ideas is that God is not a substance. God exists in the circulation of references of the entire religious network, which... So it's a network, know, too? Yes, yeah, yeah. Which I, I find that hard to square with traditional religiosity. Is he moving towards plasma now? Could God be the plasma? It just erupts and it, yeah, startles the religious network. But seriously, my question is, is it really in this kind of philosophy? Because that's so much outside our discourse. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to relate to these theories in a purely rational way, even though we go beyond the rationalistic kind of manage yeah. that. Yeah. But say, in our field, the um, other aspect that might be important in philosophers is totally absent somehow, mm -hmm. or suppressed, or whatever. Mm -hmm. How important do you think it is for grasping what is there? I would say important, because he doesn't seem to leave enough room for it. He hides it. To some extent. He doesn't, at least doesn't sufficiently account for it. I'm glad he's... What about Heidegger? Well, Heidegger. Well, Heidegger, you can always make the mistake of identifying God with being, I think. I don't, I don't really see much room for God in Heidegger's philosophy either. That's a fashion now. Heidegger and, and the religion of the holy. Heidegger and the holy. There's a lot of books about this now. Yeah, maybe, but where where is God in that? Uh, because God would be a specific being, which for Heidegger is always a bad thing. Um, God is not being itself for Heidegger. So I think there's sort of a vague religiosity there, and Heidegger himself seemed to retain some sort of respect for religion again. He'd go and pray in churches sometimes at the end of his life, despite having withdrawn from the religion completely. But I don't, I don't see within his philosophy how he looked this up. People are trying to explain the fourfold in terms of religion now, which I think is an absolute mistake. There's no way to do it. So I, I'm upset about that. People try to drag the fourfold in Heidegger's philosophy of religion where it has no place. And, there is and that has to be the absolute last question on the subject one. Um, how do you understand the idea? I'm glad you brought it up this time, speculating objects. How do you understand the concept of speculating words as an object? Is that no potentiality of becoming the unfolding? It's, it's a kind of translation across time. He calls it a trajectory. Yes, and the object is different in each stage. That's the key for him. It's not the same thing anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a third actor who has to say that it's the same thing. And in many cases, it's not controversial at all. It's not controversial to say it's the same chair as it was yesterday. The changes are very slight. But it's controversial if you want to talk about um, um, you know, who, which, which country is the rightful heir of some defunct country that's broken up into pieces or something like that. It becomes very controversial. Or who's doing real phenomenology now in philosophy? Is it, the, is it the rigorous Husserlians, or is it me, or is it, is it Heidegger's followers, or the tour? Uh, then it becomes controversial to know where the trajectory went. And 
so there really are transformations at each stage. So it's not potential, because potential would imply that it's already contained in German and then Husserl was Heidegger's philosophy, which Husserl would not be able to say. Husserl would have to say that Heidegger translated it into a new form, and then somebody else translates Heidegger. Okay, so, sorry, real quick. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.